just want to invite you just to take a deep breath, just all the way in and all the way out. Just take another deep breath in, breathe in the Holy Spirit, all the way in and all the way out. Let's just take one more together, one deep breath, all the way in and all the way out. I just want to give you just a few moments, my dear friends, just to just to offer in silence, and maybe for some of us, this is just the first few moments of silence we've had today. I just want to give you a few moments to offer in silence whatever's on your heart this evening. And if it matters to you, it matters to the Lord. So whether it's something that's troubling you or something that you can't wait about, or whatever that is, I just want to give you a few moments of silence just to offer that to the Lord, and I'll make a formal prayer and we'll be on our way. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you here tonight as your children, longing to encounter you, longing to see your face. And I ask, Father, that you would father us this evening, that you would father us in a new way this Lenten season, that we would come to know you as a good Father who cares. Jesus, we ask that you would guide us, guide us in your footsteps, that we would follow you. You give us the courage and the strength to surrender our hearts to you in every way. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us, that we would not be in this Lenten journey on our own, but that you would lead us, that you would transform us into Christ, heal us. And Mother Mary, our mama, you who are all beautiful, we come before you here tonight and we just offer our hearts to you, mama. We ask that you would protect us, that you would intercede for us, and that you would pray for us as we pray together as a family, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, and pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Give two people a high five and have a seat. All right, there you go. <clears throat> Good evening, y'all. How are y'all? This is a lovely site. Can I just say that to you? Um, just, uh, just a few logistics. We are just delighted to have you. You're most welcome. I'm so glad that all of you are here. And we're going to try to get some more chairs for you tomorrow night. So if you didn't get a chair, we're going to work on that. I was also supposed to tell you that hopefully the fire marshal doesn't show up, okay? But secondly, <laughs> that if there is a fire, there's, there, I feel like a flight attendant. There are two exits here and here. Your seat cushion has, you don't have a seat cushion, so you're, you're on your own. Okay, so um, I have a, a little bit of a PowerPoint here for you. This, the reason why we're in here is because I have some art and some a PowerPoint and some beautiful things for you. I've got some video clips for you as well. Um, our AV isn't working totally tonight, so we'll do that tomorrow night. But if there's anything that you can't read, don't worry, I'll read it to you. Okay, so I just want you to know that. My heart for you, if, when, when we're here tonight, and if you come back tomorrow and you come back Wednesday night, really my deepest heart for you is really not what I'm going to say. It's not what I have to offer you. And I have a lot of beautiful things for you. I've got all kinds of beautiful things. But really my desire and my heart for you is that you encounter Christ himself. Because I can promise you this, like Father Sibley said, I travel the nation, I speak to thousands of people every year. I know very well that the most important thing that you're going to hear tonight, and if you come back in the next couple nights, the most important thing you're going to hear is not what I'm going to say. The most important thing that you're going to hear is the Holy Spirit speaking to you personally. Amen? Amen. You better believe it. <laughs> 
Because the Lord is alive and well, and he loves you. He loves you. And I mean, I, I, love, I, love, I, I live in the great nation of Texas, okay? So I'm your, I'm your neighbor to the west here. But um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. So I'm from the Seattle, Portland area. And so I, just like I said, I travel a lot. And so I spend a lot of time in airports. Now, have you gone to airports and you just watch people? Have you ever gone to airports and just watch people? So I spend so much time in airports now that I watch people watch people. Okay, it's like a little creepy. I know, I agree. It's just, try it sometime. It's a little weird. But anyway, so I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and I, I was at a mission, our mission just north of downtown Seattle for eight years. So it's very common. So I come here to you, to Louisiana. Everybody knows I'm a sister. It's really amazing. It's just like, oh, thank you. Because that's not always the case in different parts of the nation in case you didn't know, okay? Case in point, Seattle, Washington, not the like bastion for Orthodox Christianity on the state of Washington. The city, the city religion in Seattle is recycling, okay? So if you do not, do not mix the glass and the plastic, you go straight to hell, okay? So they don't usually see sisters, so they kind of look at you and they're like, what, what are you? Like, we don't really know what you are. So, so this is one of my favorite stories. So several years ago, I was at a grocery store in the produce section getting kale, because nuns eat kale. And so there I was, and I was putting the kale in my bag, and I just, I've been in a religious life over 20 years, and I've been wearing a habit for a long time, so I've had all kinds of interactions with all kinds of people. So I see in my, my corner of my vision somebody quickly approaching, and I'm like, okay, 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock, coming in hot. And this just, I, I'm like, I don't, and I'm preparing myself for some sort of encounter, but I do not know what it is. And I look up out of the corner of my eye, and there's a man about 60 years old, and he is just rushing toward me, and he's, he stops right in front of me. He says, oh, are you a nun? <laughs> and I said, yes. Yes, I am. And he says, wow, they still make nuns? And I said, yes, sir. Yes, they do. They still make nuns. And he proceeded to launch into a story about Sister Patty when he was in third grade, right? And he was raised by sisters. He went to Catholic school his whole life. And he was talking about Sister Patty. It was his favorite sister. And he was in the third grade. And he said, Sister, I got the ruler a lot, but I deserved it every single time. I deserved it every single time. And have you ever had somebody tell you a story where they, it's like they leave the present moment and they go back in time? And this man in front of me wasn't 60 years old. He was in third grade again. And he was telling me how much he loved Sister Patty and how beautiful she was and how wonderful she was. And he was just lost. He was like lost in this moment. And then he looked up to the ceiling and then he just kind of came back to, to himself. And he looked at me and he said, thank you, sister. He's like, I love them so much. I love them so much. And he just walked away. And I don't know his story. I would have loved to have known his story. I don't know if he's even still a believer. But I do know that a third, when he was in third grade, Sister Patty had a profound impact upon his life. And, you know, in our life, in your life, in my life, we often don't understand, like, the impact that we have on people and kind of what's happening in our journey. And to the degree to which you and I say yes to God or no to God and all the different daily decisions that you and I make every single day have a profound impact. And I really do believe the day that you and I leave this earth and we leave Kronos and we enter into Kairos, we leave chronological time and we go into the time of God, into the present now, the internal now, and as St. Paul says, we will see as we are seen, and we will know as we are known, and we will love as we are loved, and we will finally see, and we will see, and I think we'll, we will be so amazed and just overwhelmed at how closely interconnected we all are, so closely. So the degree to which you live your life for God or not profoundly affects everybody. You know, there's a saying that there's you know, no man is an island, right? There's no such thing as a private sin. There's no such thing as a private virtue either, right? So in our journey, Christ is always coming to encounter us, and he's always drawing near. 
Um, Pope Francis, every year, I don't know if you know this, but every year the Holy Father writes a letter for Lent. And you can look at the, all the letters, you know, you can find them on the Vatican website. But in every year the theme is different. And the letter is only three pages long. It's very simple. And it's very interesting to notice what the Holy Father is announcing to the world, to planet Earth. <laughs> what is the theme for Lent? And this year, Pope Francis chose 2 Corinthians verse 5, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, where St. Paul talks about being reconciled to God. And here's an excerpt from his letter for Lent. And I just want to read it to you because it's going to guide our next few nights together. Pope Francis says this. He says, It is good to contemplate more deeply the paschal mystery through which God's mercy has been bestowed upon us. Indeed, the experience of mercy is only possible, this is so lovely, in a face-to-face -face relationship with the crucified and risen Lord, who loved me and gave himself for me in a heartfelt dialogue between friends. In a heartfelt dialogue between friends. And a few years ago, Pope Francis announced a year of mercy, and he wrote a letter for the year of mercy. And the very first sentence for that letter of the year of mercy, he says, it's just one sentence, the very first sentence, he says, Jesus Christ is the face of the Father's mercy. The mercy has a face. I mean, I love Star Wars, but mercy is not a nebulous force in the universe, you know? And it's not the, just the force. That Christ loves us and he comes to us and he becomes one of us and he takes on all of our sin and our temptation and he, he transforms. He takes us into himself. We are, you and I are divinized. Christianity, like I said in one of the masses, Christianity at the end of the day and at the, at the beginning of the day and in the middle of the day is not about behavior modification. Jesus Christ did not come and suffer and die so you and I could be good little girls and boys. He came that we might have life and have it to the full. It is a complete transformation unto glory. So this reality of where Pope Francis is asking us to be reconciled to God is very important. Because I want to talk about the etymology of the word reconciliation. And this is going to guide us also our next few nights. The word reconcile, and we talk about going to the sacrament of reconciliation. And tomorrow night we're going to talk about forgiveness. Okay, so this, it's actually two different things. The etymology of the word reconciliation is this. T-I-O-N, reconciliation. T-I-O-N is an action word. It's an action a suffix. Uh, re means again. R-E is again. Con, C-O-N is with. The heart of the word, which is so fitting, the heart of the word is chilia in Latin, which means eyelashes. The literal translation of the word reconciliation is this, to come together eyelash to eyelash again. To come together eyelash to eyelash again. And you might be saying to yourself, well, that's pretty intimate. <laughs> and the Lord's like, I know, right? I know. That's, you know. Be reconciled to God. And, you know, that's a very, it's very beautiful what, what the Holy Father is saying to you because he's talking about a face-to-face -face conversation. And we say what? We say the eyes are the windows to the soul. You know, you can tell a lot about somebody, and you can have a whole conversation with somebody that you know very well just by looking at them. You know a lot especially people that you know very well. You could have a whole conversation without saying a word. And Jesus Christ comes to us with a face, with eyes that he gazes upon us, and his desire is to have a face-to-face, -face, ongoing conversation with you to reconcile you to himself so that no part of us is left in isolation, no part of us is left out here because our heart, lives are meant to be made whole. That's what holiness is. Christ is the man fully alive. He's fully vibrant, fully merciful, fully beautiful, fully wise, the smartest man ever to live, Jesus Christ himself, wisdom incarnate, fully just, fully tender, fully fierce. He's the fullness of all we hope to be, and that's why St. Paul says you and I must grow into the maturity of Christ, 
that ultimately our maturity is not compared to the person sitting next to us. So some of you are like, thank God, that's not happening, you know. Our maturity is compared to Christ. And he's calling us to, to love as he loves. And I recently, and I didn't, I, didn't dis- I didn't verbally disagree with the person, but I was listening to somebody speak some time ago, and they were talking about that the purpose of Christ's coming and the purpose of Lent is to make us kinder and more considerate of one another. I want to be like, actually, that's, that's not true. <laughs> you know, I'm all for kindness. Kindness is a virtue, and Christ is so kind, so kind. And he, of all people, is so considerate of us. But the purpose of Christ's coming is to save us and is to transform us and to bring us into his own merciful heart, to make us one with him, right? One of my professors in graduate school would often repeat this, um, this paragraph of the catechism, and then we finally listened to what he was saying. But he kept repeating this over and over and over again, and it's for the paragraph uh, one of the catechism, and it says this, and it's really lovely. It says, God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. And I'll unpack this for you. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man, and he calls man to seek him and to know him and to love him with all of his strength. What that means is to set up this time together, what we have to understand is that God has no other purpose, no other purpose for creating you than for you to share in his own blessed life, his own beautiful life. We call it the beatific vision. His desire is not to manipulate you. His desire is not to get you to do something you don't want to do. His desire is not to make your life miserable. His only desire is to bring you into his own beautiful life, and he has no need. God doesn't create out of need. He creates out of sheer goodness. The good is diffusive of itself. The good overflows. It's pouring out. You know, you think about people in your life that you love very much, and if you're really good at cooking, like ladies, don't you want to cook for the people that you love, especially in Louisiana? I mean, come on, you know? You just want to feed them, and you want to love them, and you want to show them how much you love them. The good is diffusive of itself. And so because of that, because his desire is to bring you into his own beautiful life, oh, he's so gracious. God is always drawing near to you. Always. This, at this very moment, in each in your own way, God is drawing near to you. And the, just the language of drawing near is so gentle and so respectful. So if I were to draw near to you, I would do so in a very gentle way. And I would come and draw, and I would sit next to you, and I would listen to your story. He doesn't come crashing in. He doesn't come to destroy us or to disturb us. He draws near to us. And from that, from that drawing near, I, not, I notice the language that also says he calls man. He doesn't compel you. He doesn't force you. He doesn't, you know, guilt trip you. <laughs> he calls you. And this is the, it is the deepest desire of our heart to live in union. Because when you think about your life, when you think about your life, when you choose God and you're living a life of what is good, true, and beautiful in Christ, and you, all of us sin in our lives, and the times that you don't do that, if you just pay attention to the interior experience that you have, do you not notice the difference? When you know you've done something you shouldn't have done, and that happens, and doesn't it just, at a natural level, doesn't a natural sadness just arise? We know that within ourselves, we know that in our life, we're, not, we're made for something so much more, so much more. And sometimes we settle for mediocrity, and we settle for just saying, well, this is as good as it's going to get. My marriage this is as good as it's going to get. My faith life, I'm old, you know, I'm, I, it's too late for me. 
Read the Bible. It's like full of old people who did amazing things. You know, it's just a wonderful. It's like God takes all the excuses that we have because all the excuses that we have are just areas of deep self-protection because we know we ache for more. And I, I tell this story very often. So if you've heard me speak, some of you probably heard me tell this story, but my mom, my mom and I, my mom was my favorite person. I love my mother. And I just want to say to you that she's, she lives out in the Pacific Northwest. And she, she's a, I feel like she could be a Louisiana girl at heart. She's a South Texan, but she could be a Louisiana girl at heart because it, whenever she passes away, this is the story I will tell at her eulogy. About, my mom's 77 now. And my mom lives on three acres. She's got goats and chickens. She's got a 20-foot by 100-foot garden that she plants, um, tills herself, cuts down trees, digs up trenches. Three years ago during Holy Week, this is my mom. My mom is also president of Legion of Mary. She brings communion to shut-ins every single Sunday. She leads the rosary at Mass before Mass begins. And so she called me three years ago, and she said, Honey, and she, you know, it's Holy Week. It's like Wednesday of Holy Week. And she's like, Honey, something happened. I'm like, What happened, Mom? She's like, Both of my chainsaws broke this week. I was like, What? She's like, Yeah, my favorite chainsaw. When's the last time your mom told you that her favorite chainsaw broke and then her backup chainsaw broke? You know, and I'm like, I was like, Mom, maybe the Lord's telling you, like, you don't have to cut stuff down this week. Like, maybe save it for the octave. Like, I don't know. You know what that is for you? Well, my mom is like, she's a force to be reckoned with. And she and I, when I was growing up, she and I did not get along for a long time. We had a lot of brokenness in our relationship, and it was a lot of hidden brokenness, and so there was a lot of just issues, and I had a lot of trauma. I just was an addict and things like that. All kinds of things were happening in our family. So I just want to say to you, um, moms of teenage daughters who are troubled, if your daughter is troubled and she's a teenager, there's still hope, okay? Can I just tell you that right now? Okay, that's not the end of the story. But... One of the things that happened is that my mother and I had a huge healing in our relationship about 20 years ago that came largely from the suffering and death of my father. About 20 years ago, I was in Rome and I was just starting religious life and um, I heard, I remember the, the evening very distinctly, I was upstairs in my room and it was very late at night and I heard the phone ring downstairs. And I don't know what it is, but if you, when the phone rings in the middle of the night, it's like never good news. I don't even know what that is, but I just, I heard the phone ring and it was late at night and people did not call us, you know, late at night. And I can't explain it to you, but I just had this really sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. And then the moments passed and nothing happened, and I thought to myself, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't for me. But then sure enough, a few minutes later, I heard my, a knock on my door, and my superior opened my door, and I could see that she had tears in her eyes because her face was illumined by the streetlight. And she said, Sister Miriam, your mom and dad are on the phone, and they want to talk to you. My parents did not ever call outside of the time they were supposed to call. I mean, my parents were, my dad had just retired early to do volunteer work for my religious community, you know, so they were at a mission. And so uh, I went downstairs, and I wasn't sure what was about to happen, but I got on the phone, and it was my mom. And my mom said, honey, um, your dad has been very sick, and your dad went to the doctor today. And I said, oh, okay, how sick is he? And she's like, your dad was, um, your dad was diagnosed with cancer today. And I said, well, what kind of cancer? And my mom got really quiet, and she said, your dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer today. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. That was on Fat Tuesday, right? We buried my dad on Ascension Thursday, right? So I came home, and there's something, I was 24 years old, and there was something very, if you've ever taken care of somebody who's very sick or near death, you know that it makes life very clear very quickly, okay? And if you're in recovery, you probably have heard one of the beautiful sayings in recovery that they often say is that we're only as sick as our secrets, right? We're only as sick as our secrets. And my family had a lot of secrets, as I'm sure your family, we all have secrets, marriages have secrets, families have secrets, churches have secrets, right? That's what's happening right now in the Catholic Church is the secrets in the church are coming out. And they're horrifying, aren't they? But they have to come out so the bride can be well. And what happened during that time when my father was very sick was that a lot of our family's secrets came out. And my mom and I um, were there, 
the night that my father went, went home to God, and we were both standing on one side of his bed, and we were praying the rosary, and as we finished the rosary, my dad took three more breaths, and he passed away and went to heaven. And I can tell you, even after all these years, that was the most sorrowful but the most beautiful moment I've ever experienced in my entire life. And that, that began a huge healing in my mom and I's relationship. And we've had lots and lots and lots of hard conversations since then. We've had to like, apologize to each other. We've had to be honest about how we'd hurt one another. Just, it's just been a really beautiful and deep journey since then. And I go to visit my mom every summer. And my mom lives out in the Oregon, you know, Washington area. And we always go to the Oregon coast of just to spend a couple days at the beach. And so if you've never been to Oregon, I want to tell you that it's always 55 degrees and raining. It's always 55 degrees and raining in Oregon. And so there we are at the end of August. It is sure enough 55 degrees and raining on the Oregon coast. And we went to Mass that morning. And we wanted to go for a walk on the beach, but we couldn't because it was raining. So we went upstairs and, yeah, true story. We went upstairs and I found this little condo that overlooked the beach. And the first thing I did was open this huge picture window. And as soon as I opened the window, you know, you can hear the waves like just crashing onto the shore. And we were watching a few brave souls out there who were braving the rain and walking their dogs. And you know when rain first moves in, you can smell the rain, you know. And my mom and I were sitting there looking out the window and just listening to the waves and watching the beauty and smelling the rain. And we each had these massive cups of coffee, which every Catholic knows is the eighth sacrament. So <laughs> we're standing there and I just, I just had this moment. I had this moment and I know you've had this moment too where you say to yourself, I wish time would stop right here. I wish it would stop. And I wish this beauty, I wish this intimacy, I wish this joy, I wish this moment would never end. I wish it would never end. And I call those, it's not a theological term, but I call those the appetizers to the main entree. <laughs> because those are foretaste of a life that we ache for a life that when we see God face to face and when we've chosen God and we are allowed to come into his heart into the beatific vision where the moments will never end. They will never end. And so often we cling to on earth, we cling to what we have and we think somehow if I just hold on to it long enough or I try to drain the, as much pleasure out of it as I possibly can, it'll last. It doesn't because this is not our home and thank God the best is yet to come. As C.S. Lewis writes in the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, right? He describes heaven as what? He said it's like a book which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. And this is why you want to be happy. This is why you want your marriage to be happy. This is why you want your kids to be happy. And this is why we want to live in community and relationship because that's what we're made for. We're made from a God who is love and who is community and relationship, and we are made for that. And he's calling us to that. He's calling us back to that. As a matter of fact, Bishop Barron, if you've ever heard him speak, he was giving a talk some time ago about Aquinas and the non-competitive reality of God, and he says this. He says, when the true God comes close, okay, when the true God comes close, we become radiant and beautiful, and we are not consumed. We are not destroyed in competition. The closer that he comes, this is, this is great, the closer that he comes to us, the more luminous and the more human we become. So when God, I mean, how many of us many times in life, and Pope Benedict said that in the beginning of his first homily when he was the Holy Father. He says, aren't we all a little afraid somehow? Aren't we all just a little afraid that if I let God into my life that he'll make me less of a person? That somehow he'll take from me? But it's only when we allow him into the fullness of who we are that we become truly human. And this is what Pope or Bishop Barron is saying, that God has no desire to compete with us. And sometimes we think it's a battle of wills. You feel like you're in a battle of wills with God? Or you've been praying for a long time for something and you're saying to the Lord, Lord, anytime you want to show up here, I'd really appreciate it. You know, this is great. I've been showing up. If you would like to show up, that'd be wonderful, you know? 
because we don't understand, you know, how that works. God has no desire, he has no desire to be in a battle of wills with you. If you've ever been in a battle of wills with somebody, <laughs> you know how unpleasant that is. And doesn't it feel like that at times? And we're afraid somehow if we let God into the deepest places of our life, into the deepest places of our heart, that somehow we're going to be less than who we are. And we don't understand that it's only when we allow him, like Bishop Barron is saying, that we only when we allow him into the deepest places, and not just once, but over and over and over and over and over again. This is why discipleship and, and recovery and healing and restoration, it's a daily process. It's a daily yes. Like love is a daily yes. Married couples, the day you stood at the foot of the altar and you said, you looked at one another and you said, I am yours and you are mine forever, that wasn't the end. That was only the beginning. And so we say yes over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And this is how God comes to transform us. And he makes us more human. And you see that so richly. I love being Catholic. You see that so richly in the lives of the saints. And the saints are so different. They're all so different. And amen to that. Because so often in life we get a truncated version of what it means to be human. And you're only human. You're only perfect. You're only desirable. You're only good if you fit into this tiny little box. But God, the way he creates, it's just so lavishly lovely. Dr. Peter Kreeft, Catholic philosopher, he says, we're artists because God is. We're artists because God is. And in your journey, in your story, he's writing a story of sanctity, like you see in the saints. One of the reasons why we know Mother Teresa today, that tiny little Albanian nun, this is sweet little nun, right? Why do we know, why does the world know her? I think Cardinal Dolan called her the world's most influential woman, Right? Why do we know her today? Her whole, the reason why we know who she is today is because she said yes many, many years ago. She said yes to God, and then she said yes to God, and she said yes to God, and she said yes to God. And after he gave her a call within a call, she left her comfortable convent in India, and she went and walked, walked in the slums and started picking up people. The first man she picked up was a man who was being eaten alive by rats in the gutter. And in the society, they have a caste system in that society, which is totally fine to leave. They're called untouchables. You don't touch them. And she did. And she picked him up, and she brought him back to the place where she was living with other women, and they bathed him, and he died. And that was how her whole mission began. And people criticized her, and they would say, why are you doing that? You can never eradicate poverty. Why are you trying to do that? You're going into all these war-torn areas. You can't stop war. You can't stop poverty. And she would look at them, and she would say, if we could just give one person, one person the experience of being known that they're loved and dying, knowing that they have dignity and that they have value, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. So in your journey, in your story, my dear friend, God is writing sanctity in your story. Because saints are not just the beautiful stained glass windows that we see in so many of your lovely churches here in Louisiana. That's not just what the stuff the saints are made of. The stuff the saints are made of sits here in this room tonight. It's you. It's in your story. And do we not oftentimes in our life, even you might be facing something right now, where you say to yourself, not, I wish this moment would never end, but more like Frodo, right? Where he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And what we don't understand, and we'll delve deeply into this tomorrow night, is that everything that has ever happened in our life fits right into the hand of God. And he transforms it all. So whatever you're facing tonight in your family, in your marriage, in your life, in your journey, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end. Because Christ comes to encounter us and he encounters us with his love to transform us. And in his very first homily, or his very first encyclical as Holy Father, John Paul II wrote encyclical called The Redeemer of Man. I can't really see that there. I'll read that to you. 
And he says this, a very famous quote from the Redeemer of Man. He says this, he says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him. If he does not encounter love, if he does not experience love and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Because you and I are made by a God who is love, our life is called to live in love. When we talk about love, we talk about willing what is good for the other, of seeing the other. And we know that deeply. Do you not know people in your life that when you're with them, you're at home? We call that intimacy. And they know you. They know your story. They know what happened at Thanksgiving 20 years ago with Crazy Aunt Sally. Like, they know the whole thing, you know? And they love you. And they see you. And we all know people in our life where we feel like we have to be somebody else for them to approve of who we are. And isn't it so exhausting? <laughs> isn't it so exhausting? Remember the first day of middle school or high school? I mean, can you remember that for a second? Remember you stood in the cafeteria in front of like a thousand 12-year-olds? <laughs> and you had your tray there of like some unknown substance on the tray, you know? This happens at cocktail parties at adults too, let's just be honest about that, okay? But... <laughs> It's like every introvert's worst nightmare. And you're standing there, what? As a kid at school, or maybe it was the first time you came here to, to this school, whatever, where that is for you, and you stood there and you looked at the sea of people and you didn't see a single friend. And your first thought in your heart was what? Is this school academically rigorous? No, it's not your first thought. Your first thought is what? Is anybody gonna like me? Is there a place for me to sit at the table? And then what happens? Every now and then, one of your friends is in the very, very back, and they're like, hey, hey, man, come see Eric, come see Eric. I got you seen. You're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and you go, right. But how many times have, uh, have we walked by tables, literally and figuratively, that had seats at the table, but not for you? Thank you very much, so keep on walking. And we've done the same thing to other people, too. And in our hearts, we desire to be home. We desire to be at rest. We desire to be seen and to be known and to be loved. This is why St. Augustine said, God is more intimate to me than I am to myself. God understands you and I. He understands why we do what we do. He doesn't judge uh, our, us as people. He sees our sin. And when he sees our sin, as St. Julian Norwich says, when he sees our sin, he sees our pain. And his desire is to heal us, that he brings us into his own beautiful life. And this is where we came from, and this is where we're going. And this is why Christ always is always speaking, my dear friends, to the core of your heart. And when we talk about the heart, we have to talk about what we mean in the biblical definition of the heart, okay? This is from Catechism 2563. It's so beautiful. It says this. It says, The heart is our hidden center. So great. Beyond the grasp of our reason or of others. Only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart is the place of decision deeper than our psychic drives. It is the place of truth where we choose life or death. It is the place of encounter. And because as image of God we live in relation, it is the place of covenant. It is the core when the Bible talks about loving God with all your heart. Guard your heart. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. It's talking about the core of who we are. And we know that de it's the depth, of, it's where we, how we live. It's the place from which we live. So often in life, we're talking about symptoms and we're talking about the fruit of the tree. And many times the fruit of the tree is really important. But the, fruit, the tree is only growing fruit because the roots are active. And Christ is always, always speaking to the roots because he lives in a covenant with us, not a contract, right? A covenant is very different than a contract. A, con a contract is an exchange of goods. So, for example, many years ago, when there was a hurricane that came to South Texas, and it had a direct hit in, Louisiana, in, in um, Corpus Christi and, like, Port Aransas area, and it went up the coast, and it hit Houston several times. I mean, Houston was just deluged by rain. 
but some of us, some of us in Corpus Christi got a direct hit that you know, destroyed some of our, some of the buildings in our area, and some of the, um, some of us and the, con the convents that we had had roof damage, right? So say, for example, you know this very well, you had a flood yourself, what happens? So when you have damage to your house, you have a contractor come out, assess the damage, they look at what it is, and they give you a bid, and they write out a contract, and they'll say, okay, I'm going to come fix your roof, $2,500, I'll be here next Tuesday, and you sign that. The contractor comes out next Tuesday, fixes your roof, it's satisfactory to you, you pay him the $2,500, and he goes home, right? He's not coming over for Taco Tuesday next week, right? Because we've exchanged the goods, the deal is finished, right? But a covenant is not a contract. A contract is an exchange of goods. A covenant is an exchange of people. A covenant says that very thing, that I am yours and you are mine forever. And God makes a covenant with you. He makes a covenant. You see it from the very beginning in Genesis. God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. Then he makes a covenant with Noah and Moses and Abraham. And he goes through all the generations and people break the covenant and they break the covenant and they break the covenant. And God makes another covenant with them. He's like, I'm going to be your God. You, I want you to be my people. You're my people. I'm your God. Like, work with me, people. Like, help me help you. Like, I love you. I want to be your God. And at one point, God compares Israel to an unfaithful bride. And he says, I, I found you. I found you. You were nobody when I found you. I found you and I raised you and I clothed you and I bathed you. And I gave you the most beautiful gown. I put beautiful earrings in your ears and I gave you the finest sweet and the best oil and the best wine and you were exceedingly beautiful, fit as a queen. But you became enamored by your own beauty and you gave your beauty to every passerby and you forgot who you belonged to. And we're going to hear that this Lent. We're going to hear those very rings this Lent. And so what does the Lord say? And this is very important for us to hear. What does the Lord say to us? He says, so I will allure her. I will lead her into the desert. I will hedge her in so she can't run away. I will hedge her in and I will speak tenderly to her. I will speak tenderly to her. And she will remember that I am her husband. I am her God and that she belongs to me. And this is what God is doing in your life and in my life. He's reminding us of who we are, and he's speaking to the depths of our hearts. And if you've ever read any of, there's a Catholic philosopher named Dietrich von Hildebrand, absolutely wonderful, and he has a book, one of his works is called The Heart, very aptly fitting, and it's called An Analysis of Human and Divine Affectivity. Because when we talk about the heart, when God speaks to us at the heart, we have to understand we're not talking about mere sentiment. You know, this is not the meme that you see on Instagram that's like, just follow your heart, which is usually really bad advice. Okay, can I just say that right now? Gosh. If you don't understand what's happening, it's, it can be really bad advice. So when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about the core of the person in union with the intellect and the will. But in areas of relationship, it is the heart that we deal with. And this is why, my dear brothers and sisters, for men and women alike, we must have hearts of flesh. We must have hearts that are alive and hearts that are vulnerable and hearts that are open. And that seems risky, doesn't it? We spend so much of our life trying to self-protect so we don't get hurt. But when we do that, our hearts become hard. So this is what Dietrich von Hildebrand has to say. It's actually very beautiful. He says, in the moral spirit is the will, which has the character of a last valid word. Here the voice of our free spiritual center counts above all. We find the true self primarily in the will. In many other domains, however, it is the heart, which is the most intimate part of the person, the core, the real self, rather than the will or the intellect. This is so in the realm of human love, conjugal love, friendship, filial love, parental love. The heart is here not only the true self, because love is essentially a voice of the heart, it is also the true self insofar as love aims at the heart of the beloved in a specific way, and you know this very well in your own experience. 
The lover wants to pour his love into the heart of the beloved. He wants to affect the heart, to fill it with happiness, and only then will he feel that he really has reached the beloved, his very self. I have a wonderful mentor who's a, who's a marriage and family therapist for many, many years, and he was saying that when he and his wife, many years ago, he and his wife had massive marital problems. And here he is, a marriage and family therapist, counseling other couples, and he and his wife are having massive problems at home. And when he was 13 years old, his parents divorced. And he made a vow out of fear and out of anger, I will never, I will never divorce like my parents did, which is, in a sense, a good thing, but it was made out of fear and out of anger, so it bound him to this fear and anger. So he lived in constantly this fear of divorce. And he had an encounter, he prayed about it for a long time. He and his wife were not getting along, and he did not know how they were going to survive, this marriage was going to survive. But he knew that he had made a covenant with her, and he was going to do the right thing, and he was a man of his word, okay? So he prayed about it and came back to her, and he said to her, you know what, I, I've made a decision, I'm not going to divorce you. Like, I'm committed to you, I've made a commitment, and I, my word means what it means, and I'm, I'm committed to you. I'm, I'm, we're going to do this. And she looked at him, and she said something that changed his whole life. She looked at him, and she said, I don't want your commitment. I want your devotion. There's a reason why you and I don't have First Friday commitments to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, you know? First Friday devotions, right? We ask, what are you devoted to? And yes, commitment is part of the human experience. We must or will choose to commit. But the commitment is powered by a deep affection, what Dietrich von Hildrand would call tender affectivity that is appropriate in its desire, appropriate in its ache, appropriate in its yearning. And do you not know people in your life that you love them very much and you try to show up for them, you try to be a safe place for them, you listen to them, you, you, want, you want to know them, you want to receive them, and they just won't share their heart with you? And you have to respect that because every person is sacred and they're sovereign unto themselves. You can never try to manipulate them to get them to share their heart. But doesn't it make you just a little bit sad? And you're like, I just, you know, you're physically present here but you're, you're someplace else. <laughs> but you're physically present here, but you only share so much. And so what the Lord is speaking to is he's speaking to these deep places, and this is where he dwells with us. Because when Jesus gives us his heart, he doesn't give it to us in pieces. You and I give ourselves in pieces because we're broken. And it takes us time. It takes us a while to learn how to trust. It takes us a while to learn how to hope. It takes us a while to trust people because we have different experiences of what, what love is, so to speak, and what it means to trust but when Christ gives, he gives himself. He gives himself fully. I was on a retreat a few weeks ago with a priest, and he was talking about this very thing about the reality of the heart. And he said he had an experience one day that forever changed how he talked about love and he talked about loss. And he was in Pittsburgh, and it was snowing, and he was going for a walk. And he's a rather tall man, a rather imposing man, and he had this huge winter coat on and this big hat, and he was walking by the cemetery, and he felt the Lord say that he saw a man on the other side of the cemetery, and he felt the Lord say, go talk to that man. And Father's like, I don't, I don't want to talk to him. Like, what am I going to say to this man? Like, what, come here often? Like, what are you going to say? Like, I don't, I don't really want to do this. So he, he kind of meandered in the cemetery and walked around. And he, he felt the Lord say, go talk to that man. Oh, Father's like, fine. So he was like, like trying to like pull his jacket, try to be like less imposing, you know. And he, he walks over and he's going to go talk to the man. And as he, as he draws close to the man, he sees that there's a pathway, even though it's snowing heavily, the pathway from the sidewalk to this tombstone the man is standing by was totally clean. The man had shoveled it. So he drew close to the man, and he introduced himself. He's like, hi, I'm, I'm you know, Father so-and-so. And he's like, I, I know you don't know me. I just, I just feel like, can I pray with you, or can I pray for you or something? Do you have anything that you need? And this man looked at him, and he pointed to the tombstone, and he said, this is my wife of 50 years. He said, she died four years ago, and I come to visit her every day. 
He said, my, my children say I should get over her by now, that I should just get over it. But he said, how do you get over the love of your life? This man was speaking from the deep places of his heart. And Father was saying, that's what it means to be human, <laughs> to have a heart that's open and to have a heart that still grieves at times and have a heart that is, is, is prone to being pierced because that's the risk of love. So much so we know that Christ did that because he's literally stripped and pierced for his bride. Totally nailed to a cross, totally naked. I hope you knew that, that the Romans, before they crucified you, the last thing they would do to humiliate you is they would strip you naked, totally naked, and he'd nail you to the cross. And here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is naked, and he's nailed to the cross, and he's suffering for you and I. And his only desire is to reconcile you to himself. But to do that, yes, it requires a lot of trust, I think, you know? When we talk about trust, when we talk about relationships, because we say that we trust God, right? And then the, the divine mercy novena says, you know, Jesus, I trust in you. So what does it mean to trust? Because this is very important for us to understand, okay? So if you look at the word trust, if you just look at the, just the simple definition of trust, it says this. It says, the reliance on the integrity, strength, or ability on the surety of a person or a thing. It's your confidence. And confidence, that word means confide, with faith, right? Coming from our heart. It is the reliance on someone one has confidence in people as persons, trusts them to be faithful to their commitments, and hopes to obtain for them what they promise. Applied to God, and we're going to talk about this Wednesday night, applied to God, trust is a form of hope. So what Jesus does, this is so beautiful with how God loves us, that he doesn't just promise us something theoretically or promise us something from afar. That it's true that God the Father sends his only son to take, a man like us and all things, but sin that he takes on our sin like we said, and he's tr he transforms us. And he's always revealing to us who he is. You know the story in the Gospels of the woman of the hemorrhage, the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, who is bleeding, bleeding for 12 years. And in Jewish culture, she's ritually unclean. Ladies, you know what that would be like. She's ritually unclean. She is hemorrhaging. She has spent every single dollar that she has. It doesn't even say that she's married. Maybe her husband left her on. She's all alone. And she is bereft. She's out of community. She's in isolation. And she is spent, literally. And what happens? She hears that Christ is in town. This is, it's not a parable. It's a true story. She hears that Christ is in town. And she goes, and in her thought, she says, if I can just touch the tassel of his garment, I will be healed. And what happens? She goes, and the crowd's pressing in on him. I mean, he was very well known this time. They're pressing in on him, and they're shouting, and it's just like this loud mob scene. And somehow, this beautiful woman braving people, shaming her because she's not supposed to be in the company of others because she is unclean, she comes into the crowd risking everything just to touch the tassel on his garment. As she touches him, she is healed instantaneously. So much so that Christ knows that power has gone out of him. And I love it. Jesus is so great. He's like, who touched me? And the disciples like, bro, man, you got like 100 people around you. Like, seriously, you're really going to ask to touch you? You know, and they're getting, they're getting kind of uncomfortable. And Jesus is not afraid of discomfort. This is so beautiful. He is not afraid to make people uncomfortable. He says, who touched me? And you can imagine everybody going like, no, nothing. <laughs> you know. And it's really beautiful because uh, one of my friends told me that when they prayed with the scripture, they really believed that that whole moment was for this woman not just to come forward in fear and trembling, to give her testimony before the crowd, but Christ arranged that entire moment so she could see his face. She could see the face of the one who loved her and who just healed her.
And what happens, she testifies before that whole crowd. Many of the people in that crowd probably talked about her behind her back, shamed her, told her she couldn't be in public. And she comes and she tells the whole story to the crowd. And what comes from that but a beautiful movement of the heart of Jesus himself where he looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. You go in peace. You go in peace. And he heals her physically. He heals her emotionally. He heals her spiritually. He heals her relationally. This is all the healings of Jesus Christ always come back to community and relationship. If I were to ask you in your life, because if we're very honest, my dear friends, all of us have these places, where are you hemorrhaging in your life? Where are you hemorrhaging? Where do you need Christ to come and to gaze upon you face to face and to speak to that place? Because he heals her, he doesn't deny her ailment, and he doesn't make light of it, he doesn't minimize it. But he heals it. He knows exactly what's happening. So where in your life are you hemorrhaging? I mean, I know as a recovering addict, I know many people in this room, I know there's addiction, there's all kinds of things happening in our lives. There's things we're afraid of, or there's conversations we're afraid to have. And so we stay on the surface of life. And I really believe this after talking to so many people. I hear stories from people, from priests to religious sisters to professionals to children to teenagers. I hear stories from people of all walks of life. And usually what happens is this. Right above the surface, when we ask each other a question, how you doing? Most responses, good, busy, good, busy. Like really good, but really busy, you know? God forbid we're not busy. Like I don't know what that would mean, okay? But you know. Which, let me tell you, in, in certain social settings, is an entirely, it's entirely appropriate because if you would be like, well, when I was five, they're like, oh, TMI, I don't need to know that much. You know, but like, but standard answer, good, busy, okay? But if we could just go right beneath good, busy, <laughs> that's just the tip of the iceberg. Right underneath the water is a massive iceberg. And right underneath the water, and I know in my own journey, and I've heard it in thousands of people's lives, right underneath the iceberg, that tip of the iceberg, is a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of grief and a lot of stories, a lot of secrets that have never been told, a lot of fear, a lot of desire, a lot of dreams, a lot of wondering, like Father Bryce was talking about in his homily, like, does God really care? It's like, if, if I am loved, if I can get over it, like all these different things. And very rarely, unfortunately, in our society today, and very rarely do we give God the space and the people love us the space to delve beneath the surface, to speak to what is underneath. Because we can go the rest of our lives trying to manage symptoms. But managing symptoms will never, will never heal the problem. It's only going to the heart. It's only going to the depth, going to the roots where Jesus comes to heal us. So in your journey right now, where are you hemorrhaging? Or where in your life is the place where you desperately need Christ to come and look at you face to face and to speak to what is ailing you because he cares for you. He cares for you. And this is one of the things that Lent does, my dear friends. This is one of the beautiful things that Lent does. I'll show you this video where our audio is not working. I'll show you this video tomorrow night. But um, what Lent does, Lent, the aspect of healing that Lent provides for us is that we talk about the Jewish traditions of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, okay? So prayer heals our relationship with God. It's the areas, the ways that we're broken. So in Genesis, in the, in the, after the fall, man and woman are broken in many different ways. They're broken within themselves. They're broken in the relationship with God, not on his end but ours. They're broken in the relationship with each other. They're broken in relationship with creation, okay? So the, Lent has a direct impact on healing in our life if we allow it to transform us. So prayer heals our relationship with God, right? 
Fasting heals our relationship with ourselves, and almsgiving heals our relationship with others. These are direct areas of our life, and this is why when we talk about a Lenten penance or Lenten sacrifice, this is our end goal. It's because what it does is it strengthens us, but it, he- it heals us. It heals us. You want to have one of the most powerful Lents ever? You talk about prayer? Pray for the person who's hurt you the most in your life every single day and see what happens to you on Easter Sunday. These are real things where God goes to the deep surface of who, you, who we are and he leads us into the desert for the end game, the end goal of transformation. And it's different for everyone. Like God is drawing near to you. God is drawing near to each one of you right now, each in your own way. Each in your own way. Okay? Last thing for you. I just want to show you a bit of art if I could. Um, and I just want to kind of lead you through a little bit of a meditation. This is a beautiful painting, and I, I, I'm going to try to I'm gonna explain it over here. But this is a beautiful painting by a Benedictine sister, and she painted it in 2013, and it's obviously it's a bit more of modern art. We might look at some um, other art tomorrow and the next night. But this is a beautiful painting titled Mary, Mary Consoles Eve, okay? And you see it very popularly at Advent, but there's some things I want to point out to you because it's very um, parallel to our Lenten journey. So you'll notice that, that Mary, and then you see Mary, and then you see Eve, right? And you notice if you, talk, if you talk at the top of the painting, you'll notice how deeply Mary is moved by Eve's suffering. You'll notice the expression on Mary's face is not one of judgment or criticism, but it is one of tender compassion and tender concern. And her face is bent forward because Eve has, is blushing with shame. Her cheeks are red, and she's blushing with shame. And usually the first thing that we do when we're ashamed is we will not meet people in the eye. We will not meet their gaze. We will look away. This is what happens in the garden. Adam and Eve hide. That's one of the first things that they do. And you see that Eve has not met Mary's gaze, but Mary is pursuing her to bring her gaze to herself, so much so that she tenderly places a hand on her cheek. Right? If you go down the painting, you'll notice that Mary has taken Eve's hand and has placed it on her womb. And for a woman that is pregnant, that is the most sacred place ever. You never, ever, ever put your hands there unless she invites you to. And not only has Mary not just invited her to, to do that, Mary has actually taken Eve's hand and gently placed it on her womb as a promise of salvation, as a promise of restoration. It's, it's a hearkening of the Proto-Evangelium and, and the Genesis, right? You'll notice that Eve is clutching, she's clutching something to her heart, and she's clutching an apple with a bite out of it. So in, in art, fruit matters, okay? So anytime anybody paints fruit in art, fruit always matters, especially in Christian art, okay? So an apple with a bite out of it is always synonymous with sin, always. An apple with a bite out of it is synonymous with sin. But you'll notice if you look very closely, which I love this, is that the apple is not the only fruit in the painting. If you look around the edge of the painting, what you'll see is covered with pears. In Christian art, pears are a sign of Christ's love for us. So there's one apple with a bite out of it, but the entire painting is draped in pears, signs of Christ's love for us. You'll notice at the bottom of the painting that, ser- that Satan, the serpent, has wrapped himself around Eve's leg, but Mary is crushing his head, which is what she does. That's what she does, okay? So, let me ask you this, and I'm just going to lead you through a bit of a meditation if you wish to come along with me, okay? So when you see Eve with this in her hand, and she's clutching, she's clutching this sin to her chest, and maybe this is the area that you're hemorrhaging, I don't really know, Okay? But I'm just going to ask you this, and then I'm going to have you close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you this. What are you clutching in your hand right now? What is the sin, or what is the hardness of heart, or what is the resentment? You know, what is the area of your life that you just feel like you can't change, or the area that you don't want to look at? 
What is that right now in your life, right now, that you're taking in your hand and clutching it to your heart? Okay. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to lead you through a bit of a meditation. So I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes if you want to. And I just ask you, Holy Spirit, right now that for each one of us, that you would indeed reveal to us what is the one thing we're clutching to our heart right now? What is the area of sin or the area of resistance or the area of shame or the area of addiction or the area of ongoing struggle? What is that, my dear friends? I just ask you, Holy Spirit, right now that for each one of us that you reveal to each one of us what is the area of our life that we're clutching to our heart right now? I just want to give the Holy Spirit full permission, my dear friends, so let's not censor. Let's just let that come to the surface. And what does that feel like? Many of us have been clutching that for a very long time. What does it feel like to continue to hold that in your hand and press it to your heart and to be addicted to it, to be stuck with it? And if you're willing, I just want to invite you in your mind's eye and your heart as you picture this, just to allow yourself to just hold that area of your hand, in your hand, out in front of you, just to hold that area of your life. So take it from your heart, okay, and just to hold it out in front of you in your hand. And that might be, it feels silly or it might feel shameful. It's okay. It's okay. Maybe some of us have never looked at this before. But what is it like to hold it out in front of you in your hands and just to look at it for what it is? I'd just like to invite you just to picture Christ, this man who loves you, somewhere in the scene near you. And he might be sitting next to you, he might be standing in front of you. And if it feels safer to keep him far away, you, you can do that. He would just delight to be near you if you would allow him to. And he's just going to look at you and gaze upon you. And he sees the area of your life that you hold in your hands, and he's not ashamed of you. He's not overwhelmed. He's not disgusted. His heart aches for you. And what is that like to have Christ see that part of your life in full view? And I just ask you right now, Jesus, I pray that for each one of us right now, that you would speak to us of this area of our life and your love for us. What do you want us to know about this area of our life and about your love for us here? I pray that you would speak to each one of us now about that.
And if you're willing, my dear friends, and this might be scary for some of us, but if you're willing, would you allow Christ to, in a new way, maybe the first time ever, to reach out very gently and with much reverence into your hands, with his own sacred hands, and take that from you. And for some of us, we've been holding this so long that it seems comfortable to us, even though it's painful. But would you allow him in a new way this Lenten season as we begin to reach out and take that from you? And as you watch, he reaches out with his pierced hands, his sacred hands, And he gently takes that from you. And he places it in his own pierced heart for you. For he desires to bring you into his own heart. And if you're willing, because the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, Would you allow Jesus to just reach out with one of his hands and just place his hand on your heart and pray for healing? So Jesus, I pray that your healing hand would be placed upon our hearts, that you would heal us. As we begin this mission, Lord, I pray that you would bring bring our hearts into communion with you. I pray for a melting of any areas of resistance or hardness of heart or skepticism or fear. Jesus, I pray that we would rely upon you, that we would trust you. Jesus, I pray for healing of memories of childhood, of areas of of marriages, even couples that are here tonight, for healing of marriages, of families, of all the students here. And Jesus, I pray that even as we leave here tonight, that your healing balm, your love would pierce to the core of who we are, that you would melt our frozen hearts and bring us to new life, that we would in a new way be reconciled to you every day. And we make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to invite you just um, tonight until we see each other again tomorrow. So tomorrow we're going to talk about forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation and just the journey of the human heart. So I would love to see you back. If you know people that could hear that message as well, you're most welcome to bring them. But I just also want to just um, offer to you just the way that Jesus is going to minister to you tonight in a very special way. And I just want you to be attentive to what, what was here. What, what, was, what were you clutching? What is that? What's the story of that, you know? And then what is Christ doing in that? Because his desire is to draw near to you in a very special way. As you sleep tonight, as you go home tonight, as you go about your day tomorrow until we come again to, together tomorrow evening, he's going to speak to you in a very special and beautiful way. And so I can't wait to, to hear all about it. So God bless you. Thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, sister, for those uh, fantastic words.
I really want to thank everybody for showing up tonight. This is, without a doubt, the biggest crowd we've ever had for a Linton mission here. Particularly want to thank the people who are in the back who stood up. We are going to do our best to have chairs for everybody here tomorrow. Uh, we do want to invite you back. However, uh, just to let you know that, as I mentioned before, this is my 10th year here at Lady of Wisdom, and we've had 10 different Linton missions. Uh, some really fantastic ones. Sister, we've had Father Jacques Philippe, we've had Father Peter John Cameron, who is the editor for Magnificat. And it always very, very thankful the people who support our missionaries and who come and speak. And so we had one individual who remains private. We want to thank him, though, for making this mission possible. And we've had many donors who've had other missions. And many of you maybe have not been here before. We're not a normal parish here. We are active all the time as one of the largest campus ministries of the nation. And so what I want to do here, again, this is a proud dad moment here. I would like every student present or who's been here while I've been here for the past 10 years to raise your hand. Look at that, very interesting. And so, y'all can put your hands down now, thanks. That the ministry of wisdom is yeah, to provide great stuff like missions, but we are really here trying to make disciples of these students. Now I've been here enough to have two generations of students. And we do it a lot of different ways. One of the biggest ones, as many of you have been to, is our Boiling Bash coming up on March 21st. Raised a lot of money to help to provide Bible studies, retreats, food, gatherings, uh, different liturgies that we do. But the way we really do it the most is by having individuals give and become ministry partners by supporting the ministry by a monthly online gift. And so if you look in your chairs, there are a few of them there, we have some information not only about how you can support this ministry, but also how you can get back. Because we're doing something a little different this year, something called the Linton Project. And if you go to RagingCajunCatholics.org slash Lent, you can learn more about it. But it's for those who want to help our campus ministry, to be able to help minister to the students that you saw here today and those in the future by giving even the smallest amount on a monthly basis. If you sign up, you're going to get something back. And so we've been working as a team for the course of the past several months to gather videos from nationally known Catholic speakers. Very brief ones. Sister Miriam, Cardinal Dolan is today, Paul George, myself, uh, Jennifer Fulweiler, small videos that for ministry partners will be delivered into your mailbox during the course of Lent. Exclusive content. The one for Dolan made today, he made in the sacristy of the church. He's only for people out of Lady Wisdom. And so it's a way that you can get back and not only watch these videos, but have access to them all throughout Lent. So if you're interested in supporting us, learning and gathering a little deeper information about spirituality and reflections from big speakers, you can just go to our website slash Lent or look at what you have in the pews. So we really want to invite everybody to come back tomorrow. Bring someone else. Just don't bring the fire marshal. <laughs> just don't do that. And so Sister will be happy to sit and visit with people or talk to people. She's going to be in the front of the church. So we're going to ask that when people do exit, you can exit here, 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 or through the front, and to be able to go and speak to sister. 
If any of you want to stay a little bit longer in the church, as we do every day during the week, we're going to have 8.30 to 9.30 p.m. adoration. And then tonight, if you want to stay late, we have a 9.30 p.m. mass. No homily, so you'll be out by 10 uh, to be able to worship with us. So again, thank you for your attendance. Thank you for your support. And thank you for your prayers. I'll give you a final blessing. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.